Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Jesus bound the work of Satan in so many different ways. He did it personally, individually, when Satan tempted him, and he stood up to those temptations. He bound Satan, he denied him access into his life by saying, it is written. And we can do that very same thing. Today we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, Forgiven. We are in the middle of Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 25, talking about forgiveness. Now forgiveness may be the most single important aspect of our salvation. It's what gives us peace with God and allows us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And it's what allows us to live a productive life here on this side of heaven. Let's hear what Sam has to say about it today. Our Lord died and bled for us shed his blood for the remission of our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. And Satan gets it. He knows you belong to the Lord, if in fact you do. And so what does he want to do? He wants to make you an impotent Christian spiritually. He doesn't want you to be able to reproduce yourself spiritually. He doesn't want you to exhibit the love and the joy and the peace that is supposed to be a part of this salvation package. So if he can keep you fixed on yourself and fixated with yourself and, and it's like all you're doing and all your failures or even all your successes, well, then ultimately you're either going to be proud and going to need to be humbled or you're going to be discouraged and you're going to need to be lifted up. But the Lord comes to give us life. And so they come with this bizarre accusation. It's the devil. He's working for the devil. He's in cahoots with the devil. Well, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided, verse 25, against itself is brought to desolation. By the way, everything Jesus says is true. And you can go back throughout human history and see where nations weren't conquered from without. When they crumbled, it was because of inter-turmoil. That's what happened to Rome. They corrupted from within. No one was strong enough to just conquer them. So they just corrupted until they divided and fell apart. In a kingdom divided, he says, cannot stand. He also, or, or it says, is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now that's exceedingly important if you're a husband or wife or a parent or child here today. And I think that, you know, you got to be one of those, right? Either a husband, a wife, a parent, or a child. I mean, it's, or you could be an adult that's not yet one of those others. Yeah, but either way, if you're in a family, you need to know that family is for family. And, and so often our greatest difficulties, our, our most intense battles seem to be in, in the context of our own family circle. And, and God wants us to know, hey, a house divided can't stand. Someone was sharing with me the other day just some struggles they were going through. And I'm saying, you just need to go home and, and remind your wife, hey, we're a unit. We're for each other. We're together. Our kids, man, our family is everything. It's the Lord and it's our family. And, and it's the enemy who's trying to destroy families. Why? That's what he does. He steals, he kills, and destroys. But the Lord, hey, he created family. It was his plan and purpose that Adam be married to Eve and that they produce a family and that there would be godly offspring. That's still his plan and purpose. So if your home, your house is divided, 
hey, deal with that. Nobody is going to be for you like your family. Nobody's going to care for you and provide for you like your family. A house divided cannot stand. And then he, having sort of laid out that foundationally, goes on to say, if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? See, he applies the principle by saying, look, this is irrational, you guys. It's illogical. If Satan's fighting Satan, how will Satan... Well, here's the good news. Satan's not going to stand, but it won't be because he's against himself. No, it'll be because Jesus is against him. He was tempted in all ways by him, resisted him, and using the word of God, as those of you who've studied through that temptation story know, he resisted in all temptation because, well, tempted in all ways yet without sin. That had to happen. Why? It was a sinless man that first sold us out. When Adam and Eve sinned, they had been given one prohibition by God, and that was do anything you want, have anything you want, enjoy everything you want. It's all good. I made it for you, but there's one tree, and I don't want you to eat of it. Now, you need to know there was nothing wrong with that fruit at all. It wasn't poison fruit. It wasn't a bad tree. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because... Only through their disobedience would they ever know evil. You see, they couldn't even grasp the concept of evil or death. But you don't have to grasp the concept if somebody tells you, hey, this is evil, this is death, you don't want any part of it. Here's life and life abundant, enjoy it. And they chose willingly to sin against their Lord, their God. And sin entered into the world. But... Here he just says, hey, Satan's not against himself, and certainly the Lord is against Satan. He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, asking yet a second question, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. He just says, go ask your kids how they're pulling this off. Because there were exorcists in that day, and people were being freed from demon possession, and not just by Jesus. And so he's saying, it's an irrational, illogical argument and and by the way others are doing it why don't you ask them how that's happening and then he gets to the real heart of all of this in verse 28 if i cast out demons by the spirit of god surely the kingdom of god has come upon you he's saying listen if this is the spirit and it was and by the way there's a configuration in the greek a construction in the greek that would allow us to translate if since here It says, since I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Jesus wasn't saying it might be possible or if it were possible. No, he's saying it really is the case. Surely the kingdom, he says, has come upon you. Or else, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Jesus bound the work of Satan in so many different ways. He did it personally, individually, when Satan tempted him, and he stood up to those temptations. He bound Satan, he denied him access into his life by saying, it is written. And we can do that very same thing. I mentioned on our Wednesday night study, it was sort of a two-minute seminar on, on how to deal with demonic forces. 
whole books and series and, you know, week-long seminars on this stuff. Jesus says it very simply, or the scriptures say it very simply. Resist the devil. Well, submit yourself to God, first of all and foremost. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I like that kind of thing because I can remember it, see, even though I forgot the first part. I can remember it even when I, I remembered that I forgot it. In fact, I had deja vu and, and amnesia at the same time. I remembered that I'd forgotten that before. <laughs> or I forgot I'd remembered it, but you get it. My point is this. Jesus would not submit to the temptations of Satan. And so that was sort of a partial, okay, you're not going to get control here. He submitted to the Father. He resisted the devil. And if you read the temptation, at the end of the temptation, what happens? Satan fled. He left. That's what happens when we do it. We just submit to the Father. Say, Lord, you bought me. You, you bought me with the precious blood of your son, Jesus. I'm your property. I belong to you. And then you resist the devil. He lies. He intimidates. He accuses. He discourages he tries to disqualify and you say, no, that's not going to happen because this is what's true. The truth, Jesus says, will set you free and it will always set you free. And then there's that thing that happens at the cross. Colossians tells us that he took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and he nailed it to his cross. All the sins we committed, all the commandments we'd broken, they were nailed to his cross. And then it said, having spoiled principalities and powers, triumphing over them in it. It what? It the cross. Jesus defeated Satan for us at the cross. Now we're enabled supernaturally to do what Jesus was able to do. To simply submit to the Father, to resist the devil, and then know that he's going to flee so Jesus says, hey, if you're going to take someone's territory, you've got to first bind them. You've got to first deal with them. And Jesus was certainly the one to do it. Then he gives us a choice. And this will come up again, so I want you to make a mental note of it. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Jesus is saying there is no place for neutrality when it comes to spiritual realities. There's no neutrality because there's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And there's no such thing as the kingdom in between. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of light. And if you're in the light, he says, walk in the light, walk in truth, walk in love. And if you're in darkness, well, you'll be walking in deception. You'll be walking in hatred. You should easily be able to tell which kingdom you are in. And he's going to give us an even greater litmus test of that in just a moment. He goes on, though, to say, well, and this is two of the most radical things Jesus ever says. The first often gets lost in the second, but we'll deal with both. Therefore, I say to you, verse 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, this is often something people dwell on. They want to figure it out. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. In fact, I was tempted to make that the title. And of course... 
that people are curious and they're like, yeah, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is the unpardonable sin? Well, in its context, it's attributing the work of Jesus, the miracles of God, to Satan. It's questionable if we can actually commit that very sin in the same way today. Uh, people could say, well, I don't know if there's light and darkness, or I don't believe in the light or darkness, but, but to say the light is the darkness, well, Isaiah says, woe to those who call light darkness and, and evil good and who mix up such issues. But, but my point is this. He's saying, and, and this is really the more important point of the two, the more important statement of the two. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Why is that the most important? Because that's the truth for most of us. Every evil thought, every evil word, every thing we've ever done out of the will and nature and character of God has been forgiven. If you've come to the cross, if you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're forgiven. And that's why I didn't title the message Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but forgiven. Why? That's our reality, you see. Few are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's possible that day some were. It's possible today some will. But most people here know the reality of Christ's forgiveness. But some have read this, and many today, especially in the New Age movement or some of the fringe groups in Christianity and certainly the cults, they confuse what Jesus said because he says, hey, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And they say, well, if I haven't committed that, then I'm going to heaven. Now, you, you really need to look at a bit further and a little bit deeper if you want to make sure that you're in the faith. Because here, here's why. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you don't have to turn to it, but you want to know where it is because you might want to make reference to it at some point. Jesus gives through the Apostle Paul, some very bad news and some very good news. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what he's saying is no matter what we believe about salvation, if this describes our lifestyle, then we're not in the kingdom of light because there's no such thing as Christian fornication or Christian idolatry or Christian adultery or Christian homosexuality or Christian thievery or sodomy or drunkenness. No, he's saying if that's your lifestyle, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. If you're in the kingdom, well, th that's not your lifestyle, is it? But, but here's the good news. I said there was good news because some of you are thinking, wait a minute, man, I'm not all those things, but I'm some of those things. I I've been that. I've done that. What about me? He goes on to say, and such were some of you. Oh, there's the good news, see? You can be an ex-anything and belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you could have been the worst in the darkness and be the brightest in the light. Because such were some of you, but here's your present reality. If you're truly in Christ Jesus, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 
You see, even though Jesus' death and shed blood is sufficient to cleanse and cover the sin of every sinner who ever lived, lives now or ever will live, it's only efficient to those who believe, to those who confess, to those who turn from unbelief to belief, those who turn from sin to him. Why? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, nine. But if we say we have no sin, John says, we lie, we deceive ourselves. If we say we haven't sinned, we call God a liar because he says we have sinned. Well, where does that bring us then? Where does that leave us? He's saying, listen, you may be here and, and you may, hey, maybe your sin wasn't even on that list, but you're sharp enough to know that if such a list exists, there must be other sins. And there are. And all outside of the perfect will of God is sin. That's how it works. And the wages of sin is death, darkness, despair. And the gift of God, everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, unless you be in that very small circle of those who've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, attributing the work of God to the enemy, there's hope for you. There's forgiveness for you. But we sang it. You've got to ask. You've got to open your heart. You've got to let it happen. Now he exhorts us in verse 33, and we have just a few more verses down to 37, and we'll conclude for today. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Make the tree good and the fruit good, or make the tree bad or the fruit bad. He's basically saying we really get to make a choice. And here's the picture. In the book of Romans, chapter 11 He says that we who are in Christ Jesus have been grafted in. Here's why. The root is good, and and, and it's all about the root. See, our root was Adam, and Adam sinned, so we were born sinners. But having been grafted into Jesus, now we we produce his fruit, and and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, patience, goodness, self-control, and such, and... It's a whole different life. It's a whole different world. Why? Because we're connected to the root. Jesus said it in other ways. In John 15, he says he's the vine, we're the branches. But this idea of being grafted in, you know, Butte County, lots of walnut trees. Black walnut, the root, the stock is really good, but black walnuts are small and, and not that meaty and real hard to open too if you ever try to open one of them. So somebody got the great idea to graft English walnuts onto black walnuts. You've got the good root system and then you've got the bigger nuts, more fruit, better to crack. And Jesus kind of looked at us and said, I'm going to graft those nuts onto my root and I'm going to make this happen for, for my people. And that's who we are and, and what we are, you see. We've been grafted in. And that's actually what he's saying. We get to make the choice. You like where you are in the darkness? Hey, it's beyond like. When he said men love darkness more than light, it's an astounding declaration. And here's why. He uses the word for love that also describes the love he has for us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
It's a sacrificial, unconditional love. And he says, men love darkness that same way. So much. They're willing to die to stay in the darkness. They're willing to sacrifice their very lives, their own families, to live in the darkness. Why? Because the light, hey, they don't want to come to the light. The light offends. The light convicts. The light says, you need to change. You need to be transformed. And, and, and so he says, make the tree good. He's not saying you can do that on your own, but he's saying make a choice, make a decision, be grafted in, connect with him because if your root's bad, well, the fruit will be bad. And he says, a tree is known by his fruit. Then he says, brood of vipers. Now, no, he's speaking just to a few there. That word brood actually means offspring. It's not the kindest thing I ever heard Jesus say. He's saying, you guys are offspring of vipers. They're saying, you're working for the devil. He goes, you're the devil's kids. He doesn't get any worse than that. How can you, being evil, he says, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The picture is our heart overflows. And the way we can know what's in our heart is by what comes out of our mouth. And if perversity or discouragement or accusation or intimidation or anything unbiblical or unchristlike, unscriptural is coming forth from our mouth, that says there's still a heart problem. And so God's saying, go to the source. It isn't just cleaning up your language, though certainly as Christians we want to do that. It's becoming an encourager instead of a discourager. It's becoming a comforter instead of an accuser. It's becoming one who edifies and builds up instead of tears down and tears. Now listen, see, that's that's the thing. He says we get to choose who we're rooted to and where we're rooted. And then we can examine our, our speech and know, how's my heart? It's a sure test. If my heart's right, my speech is going to be good. Then he says, I say to you, for every idle word men may speak, they'll give account in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Now that's a little bit of a strange saying until you get to Romans 10. And I want to read you this and we're going to conclude with it. He suggests that the heart and the mouth are so closely connected that what goes on in the heart will express itself through the mouth. And so in Romans Chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, he says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. He says we're going to give account. And that what's coming out, well, let's make sure it's real. Let's make sure it's true. If our heart's right, we're going to be confessing him. And we're not just going to be believing in him intellectually or philosophically. No, we're going to be trusting in him completely. To confess Jesus is more than to say, I believe in Jesus. To confess you're a sinner is more than to acknowledge you're a sinner. Everybody knows that already. But it's to acknowledge all Jesus says about sin and about life and about hope and all that. It's, it's a package. When I confess I'm a sinner, I'm confessing that I deserve hell, that my sin separates me from God and, and that that's right. But when I confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, I'm saying his death, his blood, his sacrifice has atoned for my sin, paid the price for my sin. 
And now I have hope in him. And now I can say, forgiven. And know I've been forgiven. And if there's any word you want on your tombstone, if you were going to pick it, man, I would want to have the word forgiven. When I was saved, the first change that I noticed in my life was a change in the way that I spoke, the things that I said. As Pastor Sam just taught us, the words that we speak are truly a gauge of the condition of our hearts. And if you have experienced a change for the better in the things that come from your mouth, rejoice. You didn't do this on your own, but it was the work of the Lord as he begins to change you. Remember his promise in Ezekiel 36:26, where he tells us that he will give each of us a new heart. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.